You're listening to the Read Platform Podcast, sponsored by Ampliant, an API uh, headless CMS and DAM in one, and Clevio, an email and SMS marketing automation platform. We've partnered with them to bring their wealth of industry experience to audience and gain a fresh perspective on e-commerce technology and CX. And you're listening to myself, James Gerd, and my co-host, Paul Rogers, today. How are you doing, sir? Good. I've uh, got the hat on because I shamelessly haven't had a shower yet today, as we discussed earlier. Um, but yeah, good. Apart from good, that. Good You're having a bad hair day. Most of my days yeah. are no hair days, so we're all good. <laughs> It's all good. Um, welcome back to our regular listeners and a warm welcome if you join us for the first time. Thank you for listening in. A world of Econ Wonder awaits. Do subscribe to get a new episode alerts. We drop a new episode every week. And please do follow us and like us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, etc. to satisfy our fragile egos. So today we have another cracking episode. We are talking to Sean McGuinness, who's president and integrator at Carew Footwear. So fast growth business brand, and we're talking to him about, about fast growth, e-commerce, tech stacks, etc. So welcome, Sean. How are you, sir? I'm really well, James. Thanks for having me. And where are you joining us from today? Uh, we are based in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the United States. How is it over there? Uh, it's been an uh, interesting January, um, bouts of really heavy snow, but uh, so far the last couple of weeks, it's been quite mild for a winter here. Excellent. And before we start asking you our usual annoying questions, uh, could you give uh, an intro to to Guru uh, and also your role? Because some people know the brand, others uh, may not have uh, come across it before. Yeah, sure. So Kuru Footwear is a direct-to-consumer shoe brand. Uh, We've been around for about 13 years and our founder and CEO, Brett Rasmussen, invented and patented some technology that we embed in every pair of shoes that we make that helps customers primarily with foot pain. Um, he sort of stumbled into it. He did not intend it. wasn't a, the mission of the business was not to be a foot pain oriented shoe company. Um, he just was looking for a, an edge, uh, did a lot of patent research and understanding how the foot works and, and how um, shoes uh, built then and, and also built now kind of contribute to some of the foot pain we experience as adults and humans. And um, the, the initial thesis was what happens if I build aftermarket shoe insert shapes and forms indirectly into the shoe. Um, That led to some real breakthrough um, innovations and um, we're proud uh, to help support our customers uh, in reclaiming their lives and and kind of putting foot paid inside. So I've been around for 13 years, bootstrapped, profitable and growing and uh, the business is doing really well. My role in particular, um, sorry, the, For those that are familiar with EOS or Entrepreneurial Operating System, I serve as the integrator, which is kind of the COO or president of the business. Um, Most of the departments uh, report to me and then I report to our founder and visionary. So he's thinking about really big ideas and big relationships um, and special projects while I kind of play the orchestra conductor in the day to day of the business. Great. And then, um, so my first question, so we've spoken in the past around kind of a few bits around Kuru, and um, I know you've kind of worked for bigger companies historically and Sears being one of them. And then now um, you're kind of more focused on building out like a lean kind of D2C model in a, in a smaller company. Um, how have you found that kind of transition? How do you find it working for, with kind of smaller teams and um, yeah, for a smaller company? Yeah, I'm, gosh, it's a great question. Paul, the, the main thing that I think of when I think about those two different worlds is, especially inside of Sears, I don't know if you know much about the way that that business is structured, but um, there were, I don't want to call it politics because that's not the right word, but there were silos, right? There's there's just a lot of different um, 
aspects of the way that business is run. Um, the, the, the primary example of which is the, the business unit that I supported, <clears throat> I was kind of the mini CMO, I guess you'd say. I ran marketing for the Sears Parts Direct business, which was a pretty um, significantly sized business from an online perspective. Um, the guy that I supported who owned the P&L, I did not report to him. I reported to kind of a peer of his that was the CMO of this $7 billion, seven business unit function inside of that. Um, similarly, the, the folks that supported our website did not report to him and did not report to me. So that was in a whole nother division inside the business and a whole different office in our downtown unit. Um, and the per, the person that support ran the call center that supported that was in a whole nother business unit, just various aspects of the business trying to kind of coordinate. Um, the best part of that re, uh, experience was working directly with that PL holder because his, his philosophy was, I don't care if you don't report to me, I'm going to treat you as my board of directors. And we're, we're focused on the good of the business. It doesn't matter the internal politics or who you report to. And that was really refreshing. Um, so I think in a similar way, I kind of own his role here. And um, the nice part about running um, uh, the day-to-day at Kuru is that there's that strong alignment. Reporting lines are there. Um, but really, the, the, the key for us is this entrepreneurial operating system. We are huge proponents of this. We've been using it for about a year. And the, uh, the level of alignment we have cross-functionally and at the leadership level is just incredible. Uh, that system or something like it um, I think with a strong leader, regardless of kind of the size of the enterprise, I think would be really valuable. Um, so we and our operational kind of day-to-day cadence, we're, we run much more effective meetings than I've ever run at any other place that I've been at. Um, we have a quarterly cadence where we're you know talking about the primary rocks that we're going to get focused on and get done for the quarter to kind of continue to grow the business based on our larger objectives. It's all based on kind of quarterly rocks that, that yield the one-year outcome you're searching for that kind of pace to a three-year plan and then a 10-year uh, big, hairy, audacious goal. And so uh, that level of just clarity and alignment uh, it was always missing at Sears. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I've, um, I've not actually heard of that, which um, I don't know but I maybe should have done. But uh, yeah, it sounds like an interesting way of working. Um, and I guess going getting into kind of uh, Kuru and kind of what you're doing at Kuru, in terms of your like direct consumer channel, um, how are things looking for you at the moment? How, is, um, how has the pandemic impacted your sales? I think that's always an interesting question when we have kind of different brands on. Yeah, so uh, the last two years have been incredible for us. Um, in part, it, it's been a bit of a turnaround. Um, 2019 was not the best year for the business. Um, I was hired at the end of 2019 and 2020, we were already in the midst of a pretty strong turnaround when the pandemic hit. And I think throughout the pandemic, we've had our ups and downs, right? The first month that it, we all realized, holy moly, this is a thing and it's going to be really disruptive. Um, March of 2020 was strap in. We, 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 anything can happen. A lot of the unknowns, right? So performance was a little bit down that month, Um and then for many other sort of e-commerce centric businesses, as I'm sure you've seen with a number of your clients and others, um, the adoption of e-commerce as a, as a distribution channel, a place to go buy things and, and do our shopping really took off and accelerated. So we were definitely benefited from that. That was a great kind of a tailwind for us in the business. And then here stateside 2021 with a lot of the federal stimulus checks in 2021, super helpful for us in March and April and May of uh, 2021. So 
Last year, even without the stimulus impact, would have been a record year for us. But last year was tremendous, really strong growth on the top and bottom lines. Um, so th that for the last two years has been incredible. So, yeah, interesting to, to, to know that you're on a fast growth trajectory. And that often brings various challenges, especially operational challenges. Love to know, like, what are the key challenges you face when it comes to, like, technology or even, like, processes like supply chain management? Um, and uh, yeah, what have you learned from from overcoming them? Boy, the the technology ch challenges are many. <laughs> uh, we're constantly asking ourselves: Do we have the right tech stack to support the growth of the business, both now and in the future? Um, it's in, in fact how I met uh, Paul along the way is some questions that we were trying to get answers to. Um, I'm not ashamed to ask questions of people that are a lot smarter than me, and so. Um, uh, that's how we kind of bumped into each other. But uh, we haven't made an, enough kind of really big decisions, I think, on that front, but we have steadily improved the performance of our existing Magento platform. Um, site speed improved dramatically over the last two years through a series of initiatives and projects that we had uh, focused on, which really helped the conversion rate uh, across the, the channels uh, improve for us. On the operational side, from a logistics and supply chain, it's been a real learning for me. Uh, honestly, at Sears, that was all handled. Sears was my first sort of e-commerce driven product oriented uh, role. And that was just kind of taken care of, right? We were piggybacking on the supply chain of the Sears home repair business, which was significant. Um, you know, seven major warehouses across the United States, access to every major provider you can imagine, and kind of a more traditional retailer model. Um, with this business, it's been really, really fascinating and, and challenging, which is something I really love. I, I hate doing the same job every single day. And so learning new things and kind of tackling those things as, as we were growing was really a sort of, sort of a source of uh, energy for me. So making decisions about, for example, retiring um, styles that were just not uh, in the uh, top sellers for us. Um, we've really pruned the line quite a bit and being part of those discussions has been super interesting. And then all the challenges uh, associated with the, the increasing length of time of getting our product. All of our products are manufactured with partners overseas uh, in Asia. And what used to take 35 days to get from warehouse to our Kentucky 3PL now takes 90 to 105 days. Um, and so we've definitely seen uh, various ups and downs in terms of almost feeling like we're over-inventoried or under-inventoried. And so the, the impact of that to the business and our ability to convert visitors into the pair of shoes that they really want at that moment has been challenging. Um, but it, it, I always kind of say to the team, e-commerce doesn't have to be rocket science. It doesn't have to be hard. It's if you really simplify things down. So one of the examples uh, we knit until 2020, we didn't have a back in stock notification functionality turned on inside of the website. Like, why not? I don't know. But the minute you start um, not being able to fulfill orders at the rate that you did previously, it makes perfect sense to go turn on that functionality and publicize the heck out of it, which we've done. And so it's another area for customers to kind of display interest and be reminded when things get back in stock. So um, that just simple act. I mean, it's it's really not that hard. You know, this every every e-commerce website should have that functionality live and baked in, um, but we didn't up until that moment. So uh, it was just part of the tech stack that I inherited when I joined the business. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it's such a good point is it's get the basics right. Um, it doesn't mean don't focus on the more advanced and on the like exciting bits, but yeah, sometimes customers just want simple things to work. And I've seen this from clients where you turn it on and you don't recover everyone because some people just want it now and they'll go somewhere else. But yeah, the, the recovery rate by having it is better than not having it. So um, I got a question about actually because um, a lot of a lot of brands when they're trying to grow fast slip into an inevitable cycle of discounting. It's like, well, if we push discounts, we'll get a higher conversion rate, we'll sacrifice margin. But the problem is it can it can either devalue a brand or it can discourage full price buying and people just wait for the next promotion. What is your approach to discounting? Like how do you use it tackling for something specific or is it a core part of your strategy? Yeah, it's definitely not a core part of our strategy. It's much more, I won't even call it an afterthought. It's very selectively used. Uh, we do have a clearance center that sort of stays live on our website. And primarily the, the product that makes its way into the clearance center is product that we have discontinued. And that's typically kind of about halfway broken from a size run perspective. So we do offer 20% off on those very select limited numbers of SKUs. Um, so as a consumer, I think of it this way. You can roll the dice and hope that something that you like actually may find its way into the clearance center and it may or may not be in stock in your size. Um, but if you find something you like, you're much more uh, it's much more advantageous to just buy it when it's there. And so um, we we it's highly, highly limited. We don't actually probably four months into my tenure at Kuru, I removed the um, coupon uh, you can no longer enter a coupon in our checkout flow. Um, so there's no place for us to treat any customer any differently than any other customer. I view that as an area where you're just incentivizing people to go off and search for discounts. It's like throwing away margins, like throwing cash on a burning, uh, burning campfire. Like why would any brand do that? I just, I've never really fully understood that approach. Um, and so I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 95 plus percent of our sales are at full retail price. Um, and uh, that's definitely the way we prefer it. When we do do promotions and offers, we use our kind of Kuru Cash um, system, which is like a Kohl's Cash. It's a points-based system. So for every purchase that uh, a customer makes on KuruFootwear.com, you earn 5% Kuru Cash into your account that you can use for a future purchase. Um, for major holidays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, things of that nature, we'll do a points accelerator. So we'll do a 3x points or a 4x points. So you can earn 15 or 20% kind of cash back in your account for purchases you make during that limited time frame. Fourth of July for Independence Day last year, we did four 4x points for four days on the fourth, as an example. Um, and that seems to work quite well. So your uh, customers are accruing those points and they see a lot of value in it. We see a lot of customers, uh, our, our customer experience team, if they're dealing with people, will say, hey, you've got points in your account. You want to use them? So, no, 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 I don't, I'm saving those. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what they're saving them for, uh, but we do get that reaction quite a bit. Yeah, that's, that's a nice approach. Sub question on that. Because um, you talked about you know, inheriting a lot of like uh, um, uh, customizations and trying to thinking about stripping that out and being more kind of default where possible. The the loyalty piece did is that a custom built for the business or did you use a specific third party to manage that and automate it? Yeah, it's built around um, a, a pretty standard plugin, um, but there is a pretty high level of customization in terms of where we apply it. And in and, and full transparency, uh, you know, I've now for probably a year and a half thought, gosh, we really need to rebuild our loyalty program from the ground up. <laughs> so I had actually gone off and done some research on other tools that can can uh, handle that from a systemic perspective. 
um, you know, really thinking uh, with fresh eyes about what are the things that we want customers to do that are um, adding value to the business and how would we want to reward that activity? Everything from sharing on social, a refer a friend program, um, other kind of bits of loyalty. You know, if we've if you've reached certain thresholds with us in terms of purchase rates or whatever, how would we treat you differently? Um, even to the point, you know, in the future state and ideal state from my perspective is to um, have kind of a tiered system of, you know, typical silver, gold, platinum, whatever you want to call it, and maybe randomly selecting some of our, one of our biggest fans once every three months or six months, flying them into the business, giving them a chance to meet with our CEO, treat them, treat them like royalty, um, you know, have them meet with our product team and share their thoughts about the current product line or things they wish we would introduce our technology into a new different style of shoe. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there for us, and we just haven't had time to prioritize it given everything else that we've been working on. Nice. Yeah, it feels like um, a lot of people are looking at that at the moment and wanting to go a bit um, further with kind of loyalty program. Um, so next question. Uh, so I feel like this is like a big topic at the moment. I've personally had a lot of conversations around it. I know James talks about it um, with a lot of people as well. Um, it's team structure within e-com. And when, I, when we spoke before, I know you've bought quite a lot of functions in-house, or at least you have quite a lot of functions in-house. I don't know whether that's something you've done or something you've inherited. Um, but it'd be good to hear your thoughts on how you structured your team, where you think it makes sense to pull things in-house versus agency, and maybe how that's differed with some of your previous roles. Sure. Yeah, it's actually been pretty consistent, um, except for the time when I ran an agency or a big part of an agency. Uh, I did the same thing at Sears, transparently. Um, you know, we were working at Sears with one of the best uh, best paid search agencies in the U.S., um, Gartner Top Right, you know, uh, Gartner Quadrant, um, really big agency. And I asked them to do a time study for me and understand, like, what am I paying for? Um, and... Uh, after fighting me tooth and nail on that time study request, they finally gave me kind of a little spreadsheet. Well, here's these four roles that are working on your account. And here's the different functions that they do. Um, the conclusion of which was I was getting about 45 hours a week worth of work on the account. And of those 45 hours, 29 hours was um, focused on meetings and reporting. So I was getting 16 hours a week of actually trying to drive performance into my account. Um, we decided to separate from that agency. Um, I saved 50% and hired two full-time people. And the first thing that the senior person did was to delete 900,000 keywords that were underperforming or not performing, either driving clicks and not converting or not even getting clicked at all. And then she embarked on a massive account restructure. Um, and we grew that channel by 40% on similar spend. Um, that's a model that I replicated here at Kuru. We were working with a full service digital agency. I use air quotes there because I'm, I'm not really convinced that many of those actually exist. You, most agencies have strengths and sort of dominant features that usually are associated with their founders, right? If you, if you were a paid search agency first, you're looking for places to add value. And so you immediately go into paid social and it's a completely different way of operating or adding value to a, to a business. Those channels are so distinctly different in terms of skill set. Um, again, um, terminated the relationship with the agency, hired two full-time people, one a paid search person, one a paid social person, hired that same person that rebuilt my account structure at Sears as a contractor to rebuild our account structure. And a significant portion of our growth over the last two years has been in the paid channels, 
Google and Microsoft, especially um, paid search and shopping in particular. Um, so like that to me is another example of a win. So the, the vast, vast, vast majority of our work today is in-house. They're either full-time employees or they're or independent contractors sometimes. Um, and uh, we definitely want to pay for best-in-class thinking, whether that's through kind of mentorship or coaching for our employees. Um, but having the ability to really kind of um, inspire people to do their best work and align them with our mission um, breaks down these kind of communication barriers that typically exist. We do have one agency that we work with that's very highly specialized in the shopping, shopping world, um, and there's value there for us. The, the primary place where I see a ton of value in an agency world is on kind of the creative side. You know, once we figure out, and we're still in the process of, of figuring some of this stuff out, um, we're paying for a specialist to conduct a market research with a, a number of our customers right now to determine like what are the jobs to be done that they're really hiring Kuru Footwear to do? How do we think about them from a customer journey perspective? Who are, the, you know, what are the various personas? We've got our thoughts around it, but I'm really excited to kind of wrap this that program up this quarter. And once we get to that point, we'll probably enlist the help of an outside specialist who's um, more on the creative side around like, what are the ways we can test um, upping our game from a creative perspective, the messaging, where where are customers from their buying journey in terms of the various channels that we're messaging them in? How do we how do we organize that from a consistent uh, framework perspective? Like, there's so much there that I think we can pay for that expertise and get um, value quickly, and then eventually probably hire an internal creative director to own that more end to end. That makes sense. And um, what about development? Because I think if I remember correctly, you have development in-house. Um, how have you found that um, compared to maybe some of your previous experiences as well? We're actually a mix of both. So we have a senior developer who's very familiar with our install. We have a partnership with an agency um, in uh, South America who has been on our account for quite some time. And we had migrated from them over to Europe and I migrated us back actually. Um and we're really happy with the work that they do. Uh, they're a Magento specialty house, and it's been very valuable. So we have uh, basically full three time, full, uh, three excuse me, full time equivalent folks working out of South America, two full time developers, and a QA person um, that are partnering with uh, the people in house as kind of the e com site owner, um, the product owner. He he drives um, the, the prioritization and the strategy of where we're going. He's got a, that senior developer, and actually next week we onboard a new sort of Scrum Master product uh, pro, uh, project uh, project manager uh, to help him with the the kind of the the process of running that team. And on the on the kind of development stroke technology side of things, so you, you, you've mentioned Magento, and I know you've spoken to Paul about the role of Magento in the business, and I believe that you've made some like key change there can you talk to like what's been your approach to taming magento and, and making sure it's 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 fits right within the business yeah it, transparently magento was uh the decision that our founder made long ago they they migrated from a different platform to magento one probably a decade ago and then the upgrade from magento two uh, from one to two was actually quite painful it stalled out the business for a couple of years um and so We've spent much of the last two years, I would say, enhancing the performance of our existing 
um, technology stack. So uh, everything's from site speed, which I mentioned before, um, conversion rate has been improved. Again, you mentioned, James, that you know, this doesn't have to be hard, getting you know, focusing on the basics. Um, it's really about, I think, so far for us, at least, it's been more about communicating value and getting those basics right. I'll give you two quick examples. One of the first things, well, three, one of the first things that I did, we increased the font size, like a full four uh, font points. Because if you're helping customers with foot pain, there's a pretty good chance that some of them are my age. I could barely read the site on a mobile device. So by increasing the font size, we saw a conversion rate increase pretty steadily. If you navigate to our site today, there's kind of a shipping bar that's below the menu that just free shipping, free returns, free exchanges. That message was elsewhere on the site, but it wasn't persistent. It wasn't in your face. By adding that conversion rate increased another 15 percentage points to 20 percentage points. Um, and the third thing we did was we moved to our category pages where you can see every color um, rather than having to click once or twice to see a larger size of a shoe in a specific color, even though there's you know color swatches available. Our, our, our line isn't that big where it made a whole ton of sense to be super worried about, oh, here's this one shoe with 52 different colors. Like I, I can scroll the whole line and, you know, just a couple of thumb thumb uh, movements. Like why wouldn't we show everything as big as possible, as quickly as possible to sort of attract some interest? And again, that was another move that um, enhanced conversion rate. We're probably at that point where it makes sense to potentially revisit that. And I'm excited to do so. Uh, with a new category structure. So that's in the roadmap to kind of revisit. But um, Magento really, in my mind, I, I'm focused, I'm trying to focus the team right now on getting back to base and, and strip, like assessing all of the customizations that we've built in over the years and stripping out as much of it as we can. The, the best example of which is couple of years ago, we built a custom RMA module before I, I came here. And so that's all handled in-house. It's pretty slick. I think the, the process is really, really good. And boy, I sure wish that we uh, weren't having to maintain all of that code base whenever we need to do an update. So for example, um, last year was the year where we finally upgraded to Magento 2.3. We were well behind. There was a lot of tech debt we had to extinguish. And honestly, the fact we had a custom modules probably added four, three to four months to that project because the, the, the module that that RMA module was built on had also been sort of deprecated and was a brand new module. Everything had to be basically be rewritten from scratch. Um, and so that whole um, ordeal in my mind epitomizes um, it's the build versus buy, really. Like at the at the end of the day, right? What, what is it that what is it that we're in the business of doing? We're in the business of helping people get back on their feet and live their life to their uh, massive potential and passion and their purpose. We want to help them achieve those things. We don't need to be in the development game any more than we absolutely have to be. And so, how can we pay expert other companies to maintain these plugins? I mean, there are plenty of people that that do that kind of work, whether it's Magento or Shopify or others, like. You know, what's what's the right tech stack for us? That's the framework and the lens through which we're looking at tech stack constantly. Yeah, it's not, I really enjoy hearing some of those, like what seems obvious, but isn't always done. Because sometimes it's simple changes making it. I, I, I had a client who had free delivery in all UK orders and their audience was about 92% UK, yet on their PDPs, they, they had no reference for free delivery. It was crazy. 
And right. it's like we know for new customers, it's one of the biggest. So simple one change on one template and the impact was was quite pronounced. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So you talked about the tech stack and simplicity. I'd love to know, are, do you focus on, hey, let's use existing Magento plugins to build out your tech stack? Or are you looking at, do you, do you have a like, well, let's do best of breed and work out the integrations regardless? I'd say today it's still a mix. We're still trying to figure that out. That's a great question, though. Um, you know, we're in the middle of implementing a full data stack um, project that is taking much longer than we would have liked. And some of the partners that we've selected, um, we didn't do a great job of vetting whether they could work with all of the tech that we had today. So right now we're kind of we're still wrestling with how to get the data from our ESP into segment as an example, um, which is kind of best in class CDP. So my, my general approach is I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to take kind of a best athlete approach, right? Like let's find best in class for this thing and find, um, find ways or other tools that integrate cleanly with those things. We also unfortunately had a multi-year agreement with our ESP. And so um, we're forced to try to find a, a way to make that work. And once that integration gets built up, let's hope it it stays fixed and doesn't break along the way as so many integrations tend to do over the years. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a mix today. And, and it's, it's a lot of what's, the answer to that question in my mind is a lot of what's driving our open question around, is Magento the long-term answer for us or not? You know, I keep coming back to there's this, there's this D to C tech stack that is pretty normalized across most people, right? And the, the question, the, the lens through which we've been having this discussion is if we were to start this business today from scratch at this sales volume that we're at today, what would the tech stack look like? If we, if we knew we were adequately funded from VC and we knew that this is the opportunity we were at, what would it look like? And it's almost undoubtedly a Shopify execution. So the question then is, if that's true, then what's holding us back from making that migration? What are the risks and opportunities associated with such a migration? And how do we prioritize that? Or like what, what reasons exist for why we wouldn't want to leave Magento? And that's the some harder questions to answer, but we're definitely looking at it again for the second time in the last year or so. Um, moving on from tech stats, so I guess a lot of what we've talked about today and going through your site, it feels like, you know, there's loads of best practice in terms of kind of CRO and trading. Um, how, where does brand fit in Kuru? Like, is that a big, I feel like my average client at the moment, James and I, uh, I feel like I, a lot of what I see now is through like a bit of a, almost through like tinted glass or a lot of what I talk about. Um, and, you know, brand is always like as important as some of this stuff. Like how does that fit in with Kuru? Like where does that fit uh, within your kind of vision and how you're working? Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> that's a really good question. It is um, an almost singular focus in um, many ways inside the business today. Um, our CEO is fond of saying there's nothing – the most important thing we're building at Kuru is the brand. We are building this brand in such a way or trying to that it is meaningful to our customers. And that's, I kind of referenced the study that we're embarking on just this quarter to really better understand that. Last year was the first time we, I don't know, first time, first time since I've been there when we invested um, some in some market research to try to understand like what, how do our customers perceive us? What market do we really play in? What are the, what are the considerations that they have when they make a purchase with us? What other brands do they consider? This next level um, is one piece of kind of a, a much larger puzzle that we're working on to try to better understand all the answers to all those questions. 
and we're put, we've put a number of pieces um, in place. So I, we actually hired a classically trained brand manager who's leading uh, both the brand and the creative functions here at Kuru, as well as the product team. And so he his job is to uh, understand our customers inside and out, translate that market research into consumer insights, which will then drive product strategy, brand strategy, and marketing strategy. Um, so that critical piece was hired about uh, three or four months ago, and he's just now kind of getting up to speed and really starting to kind of hit his stride. And so really excited about that. It was a great hire from the Purple Mattress Company here in town in Salt Lake City. We were really, really lucky to get him. Um, really thrilled that uh, that he joined the team. And my guess is that a year from now, our site and our brand will be, com- I don't want to say completely differently, but very much enhanced. Um, we will have a much better understanding of um, the core value propositions that our customers really care about, what that messaging looks like. It'll be more systematized in the way that we approach it. Um, it'll be more present everywhere of every step of the journey. We'll have good, clear definitions of, well, here's what we want the homepage to do and the, pl- the role that it plays. Here's what our category pages play. Here's the role that PDP plays and the messages that we want to make sure we're reinforcing in that moment. Um, and the good news is, We've moved really quickly on a whole rash of different projects. You know, I've said from the beginning that our packaging, for example, incredible opportunity to reinforce what the brand is, but we want to make sure we understand the brand or at least have a vision for where we want the brand to go uh, before we start fiddling with something like that. Um, Yeah, every aspect of every single customer touch point is in the process or will be in the process being rethought once we better kind of plant that flag and say, this is the direction that we're going from a brand development perspective. That makes sense. And um, moving on to kind of customer retention. Uh, so you've talked about loyalty. And I guess first question is like, how loyal is your customer? Um, and you talked about kind of having a bit of a, maybe uh, an ESP that you don't necessarily want. Um, and that you're kind of, I assume you're using segment to try and really like understand customer behavior. Um, like, yeah, how does that sit at the moment? And is that a big focus for you alongside, because you've obviously talked about performance marketing and some other aspects, like is that a big part of the strategy? It's a big part of uh, wanting to understand that behavior. And so the whole data project really is being driven by the fact that I can't answer some of those questions in a, in a smooth way. Um, and it's really frustrating. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't want to have to bother our senior developer with a SQL query into the Magento database to get answers to questions. Um, so you're right, Segment, Amplitude, and Rockerbox are our big three sort of uh, uh, attempts at trying to better understand customer journey, customer behavior, um, and, and, to, and to use those um, customer behaviors on site to, to you know, uh, trigger uh, new events, whether they be through our ESP or um, SMS or w- whatever different channel. Um, uh, by and large, anecdotally, the customers that find value and find that we work for them to actually eliminate foot pain are incredibly loyal. Um, so think about uh, think about a world where every single step you take is painful. <laughs> and then think about a world where that pain goes away. Um, the only real question that we have of our customers is, what else can we put this technology into that would be helpful for you? Um, and, and for us to really understand the line planning process and, you know, our slippers is a really good example, right? We've, we've, we've had the, the slipper that we have for both men and women is a, is a specific design that we looked at 
that I inherited, you know, it was built years and years and years ago. Um, we went and surveyed our customers, like what other types of slippers might, it was just had with the one slipper in the line. We have new versions of slippers coming soon. So, um, the one thing I've learned is building shoes takes a lot more time than you'd imagine to get designed and built and, and through a wear testing program to make sure the fit is correct. And we're, we don't have hot spots and, um, sizing is correct. All that work takes way longer than I would have imagined. And I'm a very impatient guy. And so that's a, that's a tricky aspect for us, but from a, customer lifetime value and a loyalty perspective, the customers that where we work for, and it's the vast majority of folks that we, that we sell to, um, uh, they tend to be pretty darn loyal. And got a question that kind of links that. It's a recommendation I saw, I think I saw on the website, like 86% of people recommend curry to friends and family, which is, which is really impressive numbers. Um, so you're obviously doing something right, which is the good news. Right? What I'd love to know is, it is how much of that is brand driven because you've got obviously quite a strong and unique proposition and um, how much is that is driven off of like marketing incentivization and really trying to get people into recommendations uh it's definitely the former not the latter because our refer friend program is about the most dormant thing that that uh, i've ever seen so we don't promote it heavily it's part of to my in my way of thinking about it it's the, it's a main driver for wanting to rethink that whole loyalty program from the ground up um we just it's it's kind of buried in the logged in section of your account we just we don't do much with it <clears throat> and it's a big frustration of mine um i wish we were more active in soliciting that um but just it's kind of where we're at today and and i view the the loyalty rebuild as the precursor to really you know, promoting that whole section of the site in a holistic way to our customer base. That makes sense. I think, um, I do think it's a really, like the referrals piece is quite an interesting one. It's probably like another episode in itself because it feels like everyone I'm trying to, everyone I talk to is trying to do that really well. And the players that actually have like a good mechanic and like the right level of reporting and insights and stuff are very, very expensive. Um, and it's one of those things, kind of chicken and egg, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting area. Um, and I guess last question for me. So you've talked a bit about performance marketing we've talked a lot about kind of your overall strategy to grow d2c um what are you doing on the kind of paid side so you talked about search and you know rebuilding your account and i'd imagine mm -hmm. you've got kind of brand and generics on that side like do you spend a lot of money on social are you doing a lot of prospecting like what does the strategy look like around paid yeah so um we manage the business to an mer um and i we we do it in kind of a reverse row as we prefer to look at it spend over net revenue um, so that percentage, I I've always thought, I don't know if there's something psychological about it for me, but looking at it as, as a percentage of revenue leads me more down like a PL view and a holistic marketer view rather than, Oh, ROAS is four or five and therefore it's fine. Um, knowing it's 22.23% is different than, you know, whatever the inverse of that would be. Um, and so the, the, we kind of kind of, if you think about the, the paid gamut, I think of it as kind of a dashboard or an equalizer where we're constantly kind of twisting dials and trying to manage each channel to a specific spend level um, from a kind of ROAS perspective. Um, I mentioned Rockerbox. That's the technology, the, the multi-touch attribution system that we're going to be using to help us better understand the contribution of those top of funnel uh, channels. So um, you're right. We've got... Uh, 
paid search broken out into brand and non-brand. Uh, we have shopping actually um, broken out into smart shopping and standard shopping, where kind of both Bing and or Microsoft and, and Google standard shopping fits in that channel, and then the smart shopping sort of stands alone. So we're we're not losing out on where we're sending that traffic or which system is kind of driving the outputs that we want. Um, the other thing that we're doing is we're uh, until Rockerbox has really gathered enough data, we've um, historically managed it. Um, using the position-based model in Google Analytics. So we're giving both first click and last click credit to these channels that tend to be a little bit more top of funnel. So the two main ones are the non-branded paid search and the paid social component. Um, and what I'm really hopeful that Rockerbox is going to give us an answer to is um, how powerful or not powerful paid social is for our brand. Um, it, it, since I've been here, uh, paid social has been... The, uh, the area where we invest the least amount of paid channel money. Um, and it's part because I'm an old school fuddy-duddy who's like, well, I don't trust Facebook's data. Um, I want to make sure that there's true value here from an incrementality perspective to understand what's what's driving the, the overall um, system. Um, I want to be wrong. <laughs> I really, really, really want to be wrong. And when I think about paid social, I think about um, quick, easy. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, the last thing I bought off an Instagram ad was three golf ball markers, uh, three for 15 bucks. Like I'm, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. Oh, I'm a golfer. Oh, yeah. what's that? Oh, I can buy three of these for 15 bucks. Select, 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 buy, shop, pay, done. Like that's a, that's a, an impulse buy. That's something I wanted, not something I needed. And I think of Kuru as a need brand and, and less of a want brand. Um, and so when I think about the channels or when we think about it um, internal here at Kuru, we often joke that it feels like we're the anti D2C, D2C brand. Like I actually asked this question on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, like is D2C a business model or is it a way of doing business, including the marketing channels and the tech stack? Because we're running the opposite direction from every, every single D2C darling whether they're in the footwear space or otherwise, you know, from Allbirds, Warby Parker, like name, you know, anyone who's getting any kind of uh, significant press, they're using Shopify, they're using a heavy paid social, they're very light on paid search probably, and we're the very opposite. And that's been working very, very well for us. And it could be just because of our, our value proposition of what we're doing for our customers, right? I mean, you think about if you've got foot pain, you're looking for a solution. You're going to go to Google and you're going to say, I've got this specific type of pain in my body. How do I fix it? Like what, you know, that lends itself very heavily to SEO and paid search and landing pages that communicate value and then take you down. A, uh, it's less, oh, that's a cute shoe buy, right? It's a different feel and a different, um, different vibe. I am so, so, so hopeful that I'm wrong because if I am, that means we've got all kinds of room to scale and we just haven't been using paid social right. And I'm very, very open to that. And we're going to probably throw some money at it once we've got Rockerbox configured um, and it's got enough data to tell us whether there's, because uh, you've got to run some tests to, for that system to really tell you whether you've been right or wrong about all these hypotheses you had. Um, but yeah, I mean, a big, big, big part of our growth last year was paid search with shopping, email, direct channel. Those were the big winners for us um, when we think about it. Cool. I've got a, a tangential question, um, which is about the international. 
because um, you've got international shipping and currently you, the taxes and duties, the, the customer pays on collection. So you're not yep. doing shipping uh, duty paid. It, it has, has that been a barrier to international growth? Have you had any pushback? And are, are there any plans to change that to drive the international side? Absolutely. It's been a barrier. Um, and I think eventually it'll be an area we'll revisit. I feel like the um, uh, I hate to say it, but it's definitely been an afterthought for us and can only focus on so many things at once to try to get right. Um, I would love to have a distribution center in Canada. I would love to have a distribution center in Europe. Um, so, that, and I love to have a distribution center in, in Asia. I think there's, um, this is a global problem and, and we do view ourselves as offering up a potentially global solution and it's not even anywhere prioritized in our three to five-year roadmap, I would say right now. Our focus is on getting the technology right, getting the brand right, getting the um, uh, 3PL infrastructure right to be able to satisfy even more customers more quickly. Um, and and um, from there, owned and operated retail is very much a, a part of my, my roadmap. And um, we're still a ways off on that. We've got a small showroom in front of our corporate headquarters where people can typically walk in off the street and buy a pair of Kuru's. Uh, but for the most part, um, it, that that feels like a tremendous opportunity. And I've already begun interviewing like heads of retail and other D2C players to understand the mechanics and sort of the behind the scenes aspects of it and the timelines and the budgets and things of that nature. So that's an area that I'm very excited to pursue over the next three years. Um, and, and I think there's definitely an opportunity to improve international, but it'll probably be on the margins. Yeah, understood. But it, it makes perfect sense. I'm going for a conversation with a client at the moment over there, e-commerce strategy, and, and it gets the operating model correct in the UK because that's where 80% of the business is. And that is your learning bed and your structure. And then that can be replicated out. If you try and do everything across everywhere, you just dilute focus, don't you, which comes back to some of your early points. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Sean, that's all I questioned. I mean, thanks ever so much for taking the time to share your expertise and insight. I'm sure people have got a lot out of this. It's been been very interesting. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It was uh, my pleasure and um, such a great opportunity to, to chat with you both and um, look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Yeah, it's great. And anyone listen, if you've got or know anyone with with uh, um, you know foot, foot related pains, get on and have a look at Curry Footwear. Um, I'm definitely looking at it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and thanks everyone for listening as always. Keep an ear out for the next episode. As we say, they land every week, usually on Tuesday. And let us know of any topics or guests you'd like to see us feature. Please subscribe if you haven't already and give us a rating on Apple or Spotify. It really helps us with visibility and smooth our fragile egos. And we look forward to chatting next week. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.